Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade and Mike in the studio. We are recording another of our sessions for online learning at Wisconsin Lutheran College as COVID-19, the coronavirus, has put the college online and changed many of our lives in recent days. And so this class, I'm going to save you all the intro stuff because we are now 12 sessions in and you've probably heard it at least once now, but we are now going to be in Philosophy 201, Ethics. Uh, The kind of springboard for our discussion is Paul Althaus' book, The Ethics of Martin Luther. These discussions, the book is just that, a springboard. Um, This is kind of like what would take place in class. So we're not limiting ourselves to what Althaus has to say. What Althaus has to say is supplemental to that. So students, you should be reading Althaus for that and taking notes and uploading your notes. Listeners, you don't have to do a reading if you're just listening along. But if you want to get the Althaus book, it can be, um, it is a helpful book, especially the first seven chapters or so. So we are going to be in the Love, Marriage, Parenthood chapter, which is chapter five. And uh, <coughs> here, Luther's going to deal with um, it, Althaus, the, the subheading is sexuality. Now this is translated in English from German. Uh, sexuality is kind of a packed term now in the 20th and 21st century, but um, the fact that we are sex, we have a sex drive as human beings. So, parents, if you're uh, if you're driving with your kids, we're not going to get. It's not going to be. In a, I'm going to do my best not to be inappropriate. Mike's going to keep me on task. This is not going to be a lot of uh, marital intimacy talk, but it might not be a session you want to uh, listen to the first part with with your kids, depending on their age. So. Uh, maybe an earmuffs type moment. But uh, maybe if we can start first with the fact that Luther does see us, Mike, as being uh, human beings uh, who have a sex drive which goes back to creation. So the sex drive is not um, a corruption of the human being. It's not as if after the fall now human beings have a sex drive um, and they didn't before, uh, and so it's not bad. Right. God says to Adam and Eve, uh, be fruitful and multiply. Yet after the fall, the sex drive, like any appetite, has been corrupted. <clears throat> so um, that I hunger is good. I would die without eating. But my sense of hunger can be corrupted so that I can be gluttonous. Uh, that I drink is good. I need to be hydrated. Uh, that I even drink alcohol is not a bad thing. Paul can tell Timothy it's, a little wine is good for the belly. Um, but drunkenness is going to be a sin. Um, that I have a desire to labor, right? This is built into us. God gives them the garden working, but I can become, I'm not a big fan of all the, the aholic talk we put on everything now, like chalkaholic, mm-hmm. but I can become a workaholic and turn my work into self-justification. So also the sex drive can be corrupted, um, but the sex drive itself, sexual appetite, is not, um, before the fall, sin. And so maybe, Mike, uh, so the way we're doing these once again is I'll kind of take the lead on the ones that are for my classes, but we want to replicate at least a little bit of the back and forth that we might have in a classroom. Um, it means, I think it's fair to say, Mike, it means a little bit more prep time for us in that we're each prepping a little bit for the other person's class, but hopefully it's something better to listen yeah, to. Yeah, I think so. And so maybe I'll throw it to you first, Mike. Uh, 
you know, it's interesting in the West and especially in the English-speaking West, we tend to have, we have a long history of um, sexual, uh, a concern for sexual moderation, Mm -hmm. but not as much for economic moderation, Mm -hmm. right? And um, and Jesus uh, talks about both, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Both of these things. The, uh, and so we, uh, and Foucault was interesting on this. He says, because we've been, you know, kind of trained to, to confess our, our sex has become this thing we love to talk about them because it's kind of this <clears throat> taboo thing, but it's also, uh, it just become, I mean, as little kids, you know, you hit, uh, middle school and you start to hear jokes and, um, and then part of that is maybe tied to with nakedness is this shame after the fall that they are to be covered with clothes. But, uh. We, we, we are bombarded with sex talk, both talk about um, pe- people who make their sexuality, whatever it be, a, a means of self-justification. It becomes their identity rather than a part of who they are. Um, obviously, there's plenty of pornography out there. Um, there's debates about what should be what education regarding sex should take place in schools. We could go on and on. It's hard to, to watch the news and not hear something about sex. But when it comes to uh, creation and the sex drive um, and the expression of it uh, between husband and wife, anything that, that comes to mind is maybe uh, insights from creation or correctives to be altered um, to how it's dealt with in the world of church today. Yeah, let me just mention one thing in a previous uh, uh, session in this, in, in for ethics, we had talked about how Luther identified the vocation as the ethical agent and we said it's always wrong to kill but in some circumstances you have to and we said it's always wrong to to lust um but not in marriage and i probably left the impression that it was always wrong to lust but that's not what we mean is post fall right that's where it gets gets messed up so we want to be clear even about that. yeah even the, the desire husband and wife have for each other is tainted which is good but it's still yet yeah, tainted, tainted by sin so uh, so it's not an exact parallel, right? And before, it was always wrong to kill before or after the fall, right? So um, I, I think that I, I like to talk about what you said about, we could talk about the bedroom sins, things that have to do with procreation and sex versus kind of economic sins. Um, they're both equally bad for the family. We have this idea that, you know, the that the, the, the sexual sins are the ones that are bad for the family and economics has nothing to do with bad. We have seen families split apart because of housing, um, h- housing, uh, uh, policies, you know, within our grandparents' lifetime, within our parents' lifetime. Right. So, uh, we need to check ourselves a little bit there. What's interesting though, is kind of the Puritans are kind of funny to me because at, at one point, they actually have a decent kind of sense of the body, like it's good, like marriage is good and that kind of stuff. But the prudishness of that, and I think it's, I think part of it is a being curved inward in that theology. It is about personal responsibility. Eventually, some Arminians, not, so I'm, I'm mixing up my denominations here, but the Arminians are going to be very much about the personal decision. It's very curved inward. Think the Protestant work ethic, your individual uh, um, ability to do something productive. And that's a good thing. And we don't tend to be curved outward towards neighbor. And that would be a contrast to the vocational physical side of more of a Lutheran. And even in some ways, a Roman Catholic, uh, heritage. You also, when you, 
ban something, when you make it a big stinking deal, that's when it becomes the root of jokes. That's when it becomes something that is forbidden and you want to do it, right? I mean, St. Paul talks about that, right? I wouldn't know what the sin was unless the law kept telling me about it. Um, And so I I don't know this for sure, but I heard this. I got to look this up. Um, But it's been said that most of the the curse words in the English language have to do with bodily functions. So I'll give our students five, five seconds to think about run through them all, <laughs> you know, besides the one that actually really is bad, the D word. Words, yeah. um, but that other cultures, their curse words are about something that they deem as important and sacred. Like it could be like a, a in French, something like a chalice or something like now. Don't take my word for this. I got to do research, but I've heard this before. But I like it so far. The point, of the, the point is what you put up as the highest purity thing, whether it be like virginity or whatever like that. And we're not, we, obviously we're saying follow God's laws because it's right. going to be better for you if you follow don't, God's don't laws. Don't fornicate. We're not saying fornicate. But, but what we're saying is if we put that up as the highest good, it becomes the idol in a certain way. And then what do you do with idols? Well, you make fun of them. Right. You, you, that, that's what becomes the shock jock kind of thing. You're going to say something outrageous because it is something in our society that's put up there as this holier than thou thing. So when, again, we're not saying that we, we want to, you know, have a sexual revolution. Absolutely not because the opposite can happen where you, you are going to make it an idol in a different way. Well, and then you, you demean it in a different way right, too, right? right? The, on the flip side, uh, you know, the the um, breaking of the marital relationship or sex outside of marriage demeans sex on the flip side as right. well. We're just saying that when you make something holy and untouchable and set apart, this is kind of what's going to happen with people who, who, who are sinners. And um, it is telling to us that this is what we joke about. These are our things. These are our curse words. These are uh, those things because the body is either seen as the body is seen as something that gets us in trouble. And so the purity of the body is something to be elevated, but the body is not pure and it's just so ripe for those kinds of jokes. And, and then eventually I think those taboo things. I, I want to quote the Stoics right now, but all I right. won't mind. No, go ahead. Huh? Go ahead. Well, they just talk about, you haven't quoted you, the Stoic all day today. When you find yourself kind of being taken by lust or, um, your emotions, you know, taken over by romance. It says to to think about the other person and, and all the, the human bodily things mm-hmm. that they do. Yeah. You know, and, and so I won't go into it all, but, yeah. um, no, I think that's helpful. And, and so as we, I think that perhaps the biggest way that the, the sex drive has been corrupted after the fall um, is, I guess, the way most appetites have been corrupted after the fall is it's been curved inward. It's been made about me. And so one thing um, in the Althouse book that is brought out uh, is on page 84. Uh, and there it says, Now it is no longer pure, no longer simple surrender of the self to the other, but each seeks to satisfy his desire with the other. <clears throat> and this is something that we'll see in C.S. Lewis as well when he talks about Eros. Um, romantic love, sexual love, ought to be about the other. He says, friends stand side to side, lovers stand face to face. And you are you get lost in the other, so your love is about the other. And that's not only sexual love, that's just marital love, that's that 
the Eros Lava. We talked about this in something we recorded yesterday. Mike, I can't remember. <coughs> um, but think of how whole industries have been built off the sexual appetite now. And even within the, the marital relationship, um, rather than uh, sex being an expression of intimacy and a maintenance of chastity, uh, people can turn it into something that is, is predominantly about them or their preferences or their desires. The sex drive was never meant to be about individuals. Um, it was supposed to be about the relationship of husband and wife. And this is why Luther kind of exalts the love between husband and wife. And it's why Paul uses it in Romans chapter 5, because it's supposed to be a love that's lost in the other person, right? That surrenders itself to the other person. And Paul therefore says, you are not your own. Your body is not your own. It belongs to your to your spouse. And I think we see this too then is how sex is for many people become kind of an identi- a defining part of their identity. Um, you mentioned virginity, uh, Mike, right? And, and, and someone's identity might be, I don't want to be a virgin, you know, and you think back to middle school and high school and um, not to get into political debates, but we, we've heard a lot in the past about locker room talk, right? And um, and people can take their whole identity in that. Um, and what that is, is it's a it's a diminishment of who you actually are, too. It's taking it. It would be like if we took our identity to be, to be the food we hunger for. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, now, some people will say they are a foodie, and that can be overdone, mm-hmm. I guess, too. But um, So this idea of, of eros and, and being lost in your beloved or, or um, putting your beloved first, I'll throw, maybe we'll talk briefly about singleness after this, Mike, but I'll throw that briefly to you. Any thoughts you have with that? Because I know you had some yesterday. Yeah, uh, sex in the family kind of stuff, you know, uh, it's not, we don't want to go too far one way where we say, Sex is for procreation, and that is it. And that's what happened in the medieval yeah. church. And, and this is why if you were to be a spiritualist, one of the spiritualists, the spirituals, you had to be celibate, right? right? Or ideally you were celibate. Right. Um, we definitely don't want to give that impression. Uh, sex is a gift of God, and Paul yeah. says, except for fasting and prayer, we should not deny each other. And that we don't want to disconnect it from procreation in the family either. Exactly. Right? And say that this is this is meant in this relationship. It's not just a biological urge. If you think, and I'll be very frank with the students and say, I'm going to talk about the sixth commandment and say, you can't tell me that this is not that this is just a physical thing. You cannot tell me that this is not a soul thing. This this sex, you can't tell me that's just a, a body thing, yeah. and it's not just a, a a spiritual soul thing. And so, if it's going to be a spiritual soul thing then it matters who you're having sex with. And here's God's laws for your benefit. Again, protecting the gift. Um, and, and we'll go, both of us have gone so far as to say, listen, <clears throat> you know, Eros doesn't last that long. And uh, there are some people out there who, you know, don't want to be tied down to one partner and this is going to be terrible sex. Like, let me tell you something. The best thing for your sex life is actually to fall in love with somebody <laughs> who actually will have sex with you after you're 31. Okay. So kind of get over yourself a little bit there and trust me trust me this is the way it's supposed to be and it's god's that's what god is saying is trust me well and this is i think too something that with marriage we sometimes fail to appreciate is uh some of the best marriages i've seen are marriages that have um lasted for years and they've they've gone through their battles together they've had their struggles together and love has grown out of that and when we want to bounce from place to place or we don't want that supposedly to be tied down, 
we're really robbing ourselves of a depth of love that goes beyond the shallow way in which we speak of love and picture love. And I think that um, that is important in Luther, but it's also important in C.S. Lewis and others, <coughs> um, <clears throat> other thinkers as well. I've talked about before, you know, having a, a couple that was shut in and I would go over and, and visit and they would kind of complain about each other. <coughs> Excuse me complain about each other for a while and uh you know she might sometimes say he always leaves his socks out and then the lord called him to heaven and going by to visit and her crying and say saying i miss his socks Mm -hmm. well you only get to that point um by having an eros uh that is you're lost and you know each other and committed to each other and that sometimes has to uh go through hard times to bear crosses with each other with with marriage and singleness mike uh Luther, sometimes students will read this and they'll go, well, what about the single life? Why doesn't he say more about that? First, maybe his historical context, it was the married life that had been viewed lowly, not the single life. The single life was exalted, the celibate life. Um, married life was seen as lesser. You had to have married couples because you you had to populate the church. Mm-hmm. Um, but sex was to be procreative. It wasn't to be more than that. Um, so... He was living in a different world than than our day, um, where married life is still the norm, right, for mm-hmm. for most people. Uh, but but maybe why does Luther seem to think most people will get married? Um, and on the flip side, what, me, what might be values of the single life vocationally for those who sometimes are feel like they're always hearing in church about married couples but never about the single life? Anything on either of those? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple things there. Uh, you know, at first glance, you know, single people are like, what about us? And we go, well, you know, I get it. But at the same time, I, I also understand their, their frustration that you're always talking about family and family and family values. And stuff well, like and that. sometimes the well-meaning members of the congregation or family are always trying to set them up right. as if they can't possibly be happy right. alone. Yeah. So we kind of got the opposite. So Luther is going to be so pro-marriage because marriage was seen as something that was physical, low, kind of we do, it's good, but... I mean, it's a sacrament. I'm not saying it was demeaned necessarily, but it wasn't the highest good, you know? And so now we've kind of made it, it's the highest good, right? And um, we should appreciate that there are people who have, as we say, the gift of Paul, who are able to live a celibate life and a fulfilled, wonderful life. Um, I would say be careful, or, or at least if, if you're a single person and you hear about this stuff, remember this is based on God being the husband and his people being the bride, right? And so you're still a part of this marriage thing, right? You still are. And so you may have to, you know, do some uh, little mental gymnastics there to apply it to yourself sometimes, but um, <clears throat> it is still for you and it's still about you. And, um, you know, listen, I, you can we talk about the importance of, of, of education, especially church education. That doesn't mean if you went to public school is somehow less. No, those things apply to you. And I think, I think we, we can see that, especially with marriage thing that it is, it's something, it's not like God said, oh, these people are getting married. We should talk in the Bible about how I'm the uh, husband and then they're the bride. It was that there was a heavenly reality and we were patterned after that. You have that in the church even if you're not married and single people, of course, we should not dis, di, uh, diminish uh, by any ways of 
they still have their family vocations as well. In fact, they're very powerful vocations. Um, um, and uh, if they can have a fulfilled, wonderful life on their own, that's a blessing. That's a good thing. That's wonderful. I would say I would caution people on both sides who are young saying, I'm never going to get married. Well, just wait. Or I have this plan figured out where I'm going to be married by 25 and ki first kid by 27, all of it. Just wait. Yeah. Hold on. Um, you think you got a five-year plan, but just, just hold on. You don't know where you're going to go. And just please know this, that God, God has something for you, right? He does have something for you. Um, so, yeah, I think that's from a pastoral point of view, that's what I would say about a single person. I don't know if that was what you were no, I, I think I think it's yeah. There's and there's there's benefits on on both sides. Um, and Paul says he's able to do more um, being unmarried than if he were married. Um, but at the same time, Paul doesn't hesitate those who um, feel they would struggle to be chased um, without marriage. Yeah, I mean, there, there's you know, Mary. Peter is married. Paul is yeah, not. Bo both you and I. I mean, our vices are not of the sexual proclivity. Like I think we could manage being single. But both you and I would be like mm, 300 pounds, um, maybe in, you know, <laughs> like haven't cleaned the house in a while. Like we don't do well without our wives. Yeah. You know what I mean? Some people have that kind of have that kind of gift. And it is a gift. Right. I mean, it is a gift. Like I would imagine that now there there are benefits to being single, too. You and I both are like, oh, my goodness, the, the rare occasion when nobody's at home and it's just us is fantastic. But on the long term, both of us would be disastrous. Right. And that's where there's it's a reminder, too, that, that marriage is, uh, although we, we begin with this talk about the, the sex drive, um, marriage is more than that. And so I, I used to often talk to my people about, uh, and I'm hardly the first person to do it, <clears throat> um, four C's of marriage. <clears throat> the consent is freely given. So marriage is always a public thing. Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you have to have 300 people at your wedding, but it's registered uh, with the church or with the state. I mean, marriage licenses are a somewhat new thing historically, mm -hmm. right? Um, but people know you're married. Mm -hmm. uh, but then within marriage, uh, companionship, uh, Adam and Eve were made for each other, uh, then chastity, and then but children as well. And here, just briefly on children, and then we can get into parenting. Uh, what a marvelous thing that God, he says to Adam and Eve, before the fall, be fruitful and multiply. Already there, he chooses to use us as creative instruments. Yeah. Right. This is in many ways the closest thing we'll do um, to what God does. Right. Is is in in Something the beginning of the procreation of children. Yeah. And, and here, um, procreation is a better term than reproduction. And Mylander's mm -hmm. good about this. We'll read about that later in the semester. It's God is creating through us. This isn't reproductive like a assembly line mm -hmm. production. Um, and so the, the blessing that comes through children as well, that doesn't mean that the couple that can't have children is less married. Mm -hmm. um, we all have our crosses in a fallen world we might bear. But it does mean that uh, it's a special thing that God calls us into to be, be part of that process. Uh, terrifying as that process is personally to witness. Mm -hmm. um, I'm assuming more terrifying for my wife who's gone through it five <laughs> times. Um, my father-in-law will sometimes say it's always worse for us than for them, and then the women will get all upset. Um, but uh, uh, but maybe then if we get to parenting, uh, 
Paul uses husband and wife, that love, as the love, as a point of reference for the love of, of Christ in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, Luther says that's the closest thing you can get. But there is also a power to parental love, and it's not as if the scriptures are without appeals to parental love as pictures for what God does for and with us. In fact, Jesus has us pray our Father, mm-hmm. right? So maybe, Mike, if you have a few initial thoughts, um, we'll have to wrap up in the next few minutes yeah. here, but um, regarding parenthood, uh, and, and maybe specifically parenthood in, in the Christian perspective. right? Yeah, so let's think vocationally here. Um, I'm the groom to my uh, bride, which means I am the icon of Christ to her, and she is the church to me. And in no different way, I am the icon of the father to my children, right? And, and oh, there's so, all these studies about, you know, uh, many people who, who uh, had bad father figures, it's not, it's not universal, uh, who grew up Christian then became atheists because they had a problem with their father and therefore the father in heaven and something ingrained in us. And so I am supposed to be my, a father to my daughters, which means that they can say anything to me um, uh, we've talked about this before that they, they mouth off to me all the time and it makes no sense. Like I could beat them up. Why are they mouthing off to me? The reason is because they know I won't. And so in the same way, um, we have a relationship with the father where we should cower in fear. And many children do of their fathers and how awful that is. And many people do of the heavenly father, unfortunately. Yeah. And so, uh, that relationship is really parallel. And I would suggest, uh, this, this sounds very anti-Lutheran, but that the church is mother, and we don't talk about that enough. St. Paul alludes to that, talks about heavenly Jerusalem. And that is talked about. I mean, Gerhard yeah. talks about this, yeah. Jerusalem and, uh, you know, and, and the, the, being the church, and she is our mother. And I should say modern American Lutheranism just doesn't want to talk about it. And I think there's something beautiful about that, about the femininity of that. Uh, talk about Mary more, uh, those kinds of things. And, and the church being mother um, and, and the, uh, the, the, the priest or the pastor being a father. I like the name father there. Uh, and there, there is some, there's some stuff going on there that I think that because of our Romophobia that we don't get played out. I, I very often saw the, 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 the daughters in my congregation is my daughters and going so far as to grilling them who they were dating, you know, kind of tongue in cheek. Is he a nice boy? I want to meet him. You know, where does he go to church kind of, kind of stuff? But they took that as a compliment, right? That I actually cared about them and I truly did. Right. And then the mother being this nurturing thing that makes the, makes the church beautiful, a home, you know, not to be too stereotypical, but um, something that gathers, someone that cares. The the last person who's going to turn their back on you should be the church, <laughs> right? Uh, the last person who's going to leave out hope Which for is you why, is your mother. By the way, it is yeah. so traumatic when people are, as Rosenblatt has talked about, broken by the yeah. church. Yeah, yeah. And, and the church maybe sometimes can be more masculine in a negative way in that way. I wonder if if it would be better if we had a more a true kind of femininity when it came to, to the church. And that would start with talking about the, the church's mother. And so when it comes to the family, um, you know, this is, this is, you are the representative of God to these children um, to protect and to preserve. You created them quite literally, right? A, a soul out of nothing. You are a part of that when God, when God uh, did that, and uh, you are to nurture them, you are to love them, you are to love them unconditionally, all of these things. Uh, and, and I know that 
the relationship that I have with my father and my daughters have with me helps me understand my relationship as a Christian to God. Whenever I get in trouble, like, I don't understand what's God's going. I don't understand this. I go, he's the father. I'm the, the child, usually the petulant child who thinks he knows more than he does. And then it starts to make sense a little bit to me, his perspective, his will, uh, what's he doing, all of these kinds of things. So I, I think there's a, to always connect father and church to father and mother down here as least has helped me kind of navigate things. And um and in in important ways too, uh father and mother and here maybe especially father sometimes and, and uh oh what's what's Scott Key's book that I think it can be Being helpful. Dad. Being Dad can be a helpful book on this for <clears throat> for fathers by Scott Keith at fifteen seventeen. But um parents also are mo- the the first experience that children will have of law and gospel, mm-hmm. right? Um, parents are the first to have to tell their children no. They're going to be the first and those who most frequently absolve their children. Mm-hmm. And so their um, children experience, hopefully in a Christian setting, parents are doing this, experience um, types of Christ or um, types of God in what takes place. And so it makes sense in Luke that in the, 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 the great lost chapter, right, where he talks about lost things, it's the father um, who runs to his son and who forgives him, and what a powerful um, <clears throat> parable that is. And so for for both law and gospel, parents play a, a very important role. And Luther's treatise on the estate of marriage is, is very wonderful to read as well. Um, if you uh, have Luther's works, you might get it online, might be public domain. But he talks about parents as being bishops and apostles to their children. Just as parents are the first government that their children will know, Right? They're representatives of the state. First teachers. They are the first church mm-hmm. um, that their children will know. And so they are bishops and apostles. And, and this is why Luther gives the catechism to the head of the household to be taught, <coughs> especially in the house. Um, and so uh, for parenthood, um, it's interesting. This is why Paul will say parents don't exasperate your children. But... The scriptures can also say, spare the rod, hate the child. And that doesn't mean you have to carry out corporal punishment. Uh, we can have an episode on corporal punishment. I'm not saying you can't have corporal mm-hmm. Just bear with me. But you have the extremes, right? You shouldn't not not discipline your children. Wait, or you shouldn't You should, You should. shouldn't just let them do whatever they want. I don't know if I just negated that with the There's double negative. There's too many negatives in there. Yeah, um, because you're going to raise your children in a way that's bad for them. They will be undisciplined and... But at the same time, you shouldn't exasperate them. Recognize they're sinful human beings. Recognize they are human beings. They have their limitations. They can't be perfect. Uh, And be gracious as well. And so just as marriage is a chance to reflect the love of Christ and church to each other, um, parenting is a chance to reflect the love of of God for his children. There's practical things like not only the father being a part of catechism, but the family altar. Um, where you have devotions and stuff like that, which our, our family is hit or miss with that, unfortunately. But um, those kinds of things, right? And and I go back to this idea of the true father bails us fathers and broadly parents. So I can't be the the father to my to my daughters, um, and my wife cannot be the true church to my children because. We by ourselves, I by myself cannot forgive. I cannot stop death. I cannot do these things. So I swallow my pride and I bring my children to the father who can. Yeah. 
to the and, church who can. And this is the power of baptism, yeah. especially for us as pastors. Um, everybody's setting is different. I was privileged to have a congregation that had other pastors in the congregation because we were right by our sentence prep school there. So I didn't baptize any of my children. They were baptized, mm-hmm. but I had other pastors do it so that I could just sit there and see, now they get the father I can never be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is an important thing to keep in mind. While we are patterns or types of the father and of the church to our children, we are imperfect ones. And so children need to remember as well, uh, they're going to have to forgive their parents just as their parents mm-hmm. will will forgive them. Uh and, and and this can be a very powerful thing too. I, there are times I've had to ask my children for forgiveness, mm-hmm. um, and it's a powerful thing to be absolved by your child. Absolutely, um, it's the mutual concert, consolation of the brothers, as mm-hmm. our our confessions talk about. So, all right, well, Mike, I'm going to make us wrap this up because Mike sure. has a devotion for our faculty meeting coming up, and so we have to test his Zoom out to make sure it's working <laughs> well. Um, but hope you got something out of this. We'll, we'll be continuing in ethics with um, themes from the. Althaus book. There's a short section on work we'll take next, so that'll probably be a shorter episode. Um, So you can look forward to that. In the meantime, uh, stay healthy, uh, stay safe. Uh, Most important, stay in the Father's uh, caring hands, and let the bird fly.